There's no good thing in us except Jesus Christ. In the eyes of God, that's what makes all the difference. If you have Christ, you're saved. God sees you clothed in his righteousness. If you don't have Christ, you're unsaved. You're clothed in filthy rags of self-righteousness. Would you open your Bible, please, to the book of Genesis? Now, that is an easy book to find. Genesis chapter number 14. Genesis chapter 14. And if you're there, let's have a word of prayer together. Our loving Father, once again, we thank you for being so good to us, so gracious. Every day is a witness and evidence of your love, your mercy and compassion. Thank you for the health and strength. Thank you for giving us breath in our bodies. Thank you for blessing us with warm clothes and good food and a roof over our head and a place we can call home. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the wonderful Holy Spirit. Thank you most of all for Jesus who made it all possible. Now please help us tonight to remember what Jesus did for us. Please prepare our hearts for the, the table of the Lord that we would, each one of us, we would, we would, we would come with thankfulness and worship and reverence that we would understand what it means that there would be a mutual benefit both to us and to you Heavenly Father and so please lead and guide our hearts in Jesus name we ask it Amen a number of years ago back in 1995 now some of us were alive in 1995 April the 19th at 9.02 in the morning, there was an explosion, a horrible, huge, humongous explosion that ripped through the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Till that point, it was the worst terrorist attack ever undertaken on American soil. This is before 9-11. The blast killed 168 people, 19 of them children. Hundreds more were injured. We have a picture of what the building looked like. You can put that up. Now the blast came from a van on ground level. It wasn't put up in the building someplace. It was from the ground up this blast. And uh, just incredible. Someone would do this kind of thing. Well, about 90 minutes later, you can put the picture away. So about an hour and a half later, a young man by the name of Timothy McVeigh was stopped by an Oklahoma state trooper who arrested him on a firearms charge. Two days later, just before they re released him, they uh, re-arrested him and they charged him with the bombing. Timothy McVeigh. He had an accomplice, a friend by the name of Terry Nichols. He was also arrested in Kansas and formally charged with the bombing on May 10th. Both, both these men were indicted on murder and conspiracy charges, and the case was moved to Denver, where McVeigh and Nichols were tried separately. Timothy McVeigh was found guilty on 11 counts of murder and conspiracy on June the 2nd, 1996, so a little over a year later. 
And on August 14th, he was formally sentenced to death. On December 23rd, 1997, Terry Nichols was found guilty of conspiracy and involuntary manslaughter, but not guilty of the use of a weapon of mass destruction. Judge Richard Match told Nichols he would consider some leniency toward him if he cooperated in helping the government learn more about the conspiracy, but Nichols was adamant and he rejected the offer. And so in June of 1998, he was sentenced to 161 life sentences in prison. He's still there. He's 68 years of age, I believe. Timothy McVeigh was executed by lethal injection at a federal penitentiary in Indiana in 2001. June 2001. Three months later, 9-11 hit. Now, a man by the name of Ron Hutchcraft wrote an article on this uh, terrorist bombing at the federal building in Oklahoma City. And here's what he wrote. When that terrorist bomb ripped apart the federal office building in Oklahoma City on that infamous April 19th, Mark, now that's a police officer that he knew, Mark was on the scene within 10 minutes. Today, that scene of horrendous carnage and violence is a tranquil memorial site in downtown Oklahoma City. One night I was speaking in that city. Mark, who's a police officer, took me there for a personal tour. And that was deeply moving. Gesturing toward the quiet memorial area that stands where the building once stood, he showed me where the nursery had been. Now that's the nursery in that government building from which he had carried the youngest victims of the bombing. He then pointed to the area where he had assisted in the dramatic rescue of a woman who thought she was going to die, but who was brought out alive by some valiant rescuers. Mark remembers making a quick call to his wife that day, telling her and his daughters that he loved them and not expecting to ever see them again. As he and the men around him looked at the sagging wreckage of a building over their heads, Mark said to his supervisor, I think we're going to die here. They must have all thought that, but they refused to leave because lives were at stake. Now I know that happened a long time ago, but lives were at stake. So people rushed in. I'll tell you something else that happened even further back than the Oklahoma bombing. And it was the bomb of sin that erupted in the Garden of Eden. That goes back thousands of years. What happened? Right away, God the Father made provision for the catastrophe by providing a Savior. He promised to send Jesus Christ into the world. Our very first indication of a Savior is found there in Genesis chapter 3. Based on the promise of a coming Messiah, anyone who trusted by faith in his substitutionary death would be saved. Remember that today we look back upon the cross and 
we say Jesus came 2,000 years ago. and We place our faith in him because he came 2,000 years ago. But before Jesus came, back in the Old Testament, he hadn't come yet. And yet God could still forgive sin because people looked forward to a coming Messiah. Today we look back at a Messiah who came. But in the Old Testament time, in those thousands of years, they looked forward and placed their faith in the very same Messiah. Job, one of the oldest books of the the Bible, perhaps the oldest, he spoke about his Redeemer. He understood the Redeemer, and he looked forward, and he knew that in his flesh he would see and stand before his Redeemer. So they knew. They had knowledge. Jesus, when he was on earth, spoke to Nicodemus and sort of marveled that Nicodemus, a religious leader of the Jews, was not aware of some of these basic truths because he said, ye must be born again. Here in Genesis chapter 14, we have this story of how Abraham's nephew Lot had got himself mixed up in a place called Sodom. Today, we might look upon some place like Las Vegas, or there's other places in the world, red light districts, horrible, horrible den of iniquity and thievery and sin and every, everything bad you can think of is found in certain cities or certain parts of cities. Well, Sodom and both Sodom and Gomorrah were like that. And Lot... He got himself mixed up in that. And by the way, you and I have to be careful. You see, Lot's problem, you're not going to believe this, but it's true. Lot's problem started with a TV. Now you might think, Pastor, that's not possible. They didn't have TVs back then. Well, they had a different kind of TV. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. He had a tent view, a TV, a tent view of Sodom. And he looked and he saw all those things and he heard all those sounds. And it began, that's how it began, but it didn't take too long before Sodom, sorry, before Lot moved into Sodom. And we have to be very careful as parents what we allow our children to be exposed to on television and on the internet. One of the worst things a parent can do is say, here you go, Sonny, here's an internet. We'll put it in your bedroom, give you all of the privileges because we trust you to make the right decisions and we'll put a lock on your door for you so no one will disturb you. You may as well put a loaded gun in the boy's hands. You know it yourself that there are many predators and stalkers out there on the internet and uh, many young people are, uh, are getting sucked in to the dark side. And many have committed suicide because of things they've been drawn into right off the internet. Now, the internet itself is an amazing invention, incredible technology. But it's the evil of certain men and women that have taken it and used it you know, for the devil's glory. So we have to be careful of what we see and what we hear. And I do and you do and the children, they need to and all of us. Because um, in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Peter wrote about Lot 
And he, he called him a just man, meaning he was saved. He was born again. We're going to see Lot in heaven. But Peter went on to say that Lot vexed his righteous soul with the things he saw and heard. The word vex means to wear down with toil. Have you ever gotten home from a hard day at work or a hard day at school or something? Maybe you've had finals and you are absolutely frazzled. Well, that's the idea of the word vex. And sin will do that. It'll do it to any of us. None of us are above. None of us are immune. It'll do it to any of us. That's why we are weak and he is strong. And we need to be walking with Jesus every day. That's why your daily devotions are important. That's why your church attendance is important. That's why you stay in step with the Savior. Well, back to the story in Genesis 14. Lot was living there in Sodom. And there were some other evil kings, very powerful, that came and attacked and, and conquered Sodom and Gomorrah. And they carried off, you know, all of the, the people and all of the spoils and stuff. And word got to Abraham. And so we pick up the story here. And we'll um, pick it up in verse 11. And they, that's the, all the bad guys, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their vittles. By the way, that's how you pronounce that word. It's not victuel, it's vittle. That's how it's pronounced. Say, why does it say victuels? Don't ask me. There are a few things in life that cannot be explained. And I think that's one of them. The pronunciation is vittle. So anyhow, that means the food stuff. And they went their way. Verse 12. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, that's his nephew, who dwelt in Sodom. You see? There it is right there. If you go back to chapter 13, verse 12, there's Lot's TV. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. He had a TV, a tent view of Sodom. Now in chapter 14... Here, he got taken. He wouldn't have got taken if he hadn't have been living in Vegas, right? But he did. That's what he wanted to do, so he did. And so he took, um, he took um, Lot and all of the goods and stuff. And so they came to um, verse 13. One came, um, came one that had escaped and told Abram. And th- by the way, look at this. This is the very first time in Scripture Abram the Hebrew. We never saw that word before. From Genesis chapter 1, this is the first time we see that word. Abram the Hebrew. For he dwelt in the plain Mamre, uh, the Amorite, the brother of Eschol, the brother of Aner. And these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. So, long story short, um, here's Abram's in-house security, 318 trained, armed men, and they all saddle up and they take off and they win the day. They save the day. This is really an amazing chapter because you also have Melchizedek who uh, pictures Christ. Melchizedek was a real person. We don't know where he come from. We don't know where he went to. But he was the, uh, the priest of the Most High God and he lived in a place that we later come to call Jerusalem. It's called Salem here, but later it was called Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 
So it's an amazing story. But the point of the story is this. Here we have human suffering and we have a hero that rushed in there. And Abram, or his name was later changed by God to Abraham. Abraham is like that hero. Um, you've, hopefully you've read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Adam and Eve committed the first sin. Do you realize that at that point, that sin they committed, taking the forbidden fruit and eating it, maybe it was only one bite, we don't know. But that one sin was, at that point in earth's history, the most heinous crime that had ever been committed. Prior to that point, there was none. This was the most despicable, heinous crime ever perpetrated on humanity. Sounds funny to put it that way, doesn't it? But wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, who was that man? What was his name? Adam, right. It's because of Adam. He opened the door. He didn't murder. He didn't bomb the Oklahoma building. He didn't rob a bank. He committed one act of disobedience. And look what happened. It plunged all of humanity into depravity, darkness, and sin. And some humans have really taken that you know, to the extreme. Others have only dabbled in it. But you see, all have sinned, every one of us. None of us can say, well, others may have sinned, but not me. Well, either we're deluded or we're a liar because God says we've all sinned. Now, if, if we're all in a car driving, every one of us here behind the wheel of a car driving, the speed limit says 60 kilometers an hour. That means 60 kilometers is the maximum you can go. And supposing that Oh, all of the, the women here go 63 kilometers. All of the men go 67 kilometers. Me, as the pastor, I go 87 kilometers. Which one of us have broken the law? Which one? Every one of us. And that's the truth of the Bible. Some of us have only committed a little sin. Adam and Eve at that point, what did they do? They just had a little fruit before dinner or something. They just took something that didn't belong to them. They just had a bite. Come on, it's not that bad. It's not like they blew up the Oklahoma building. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory of God is glorious. It's absolute power, perfection, purity beyond what we can even withstand. If we stood in front of God, we, we, we couldn't. We'd melt. I'm sure it would be uh, even worse than, you know, when the, the atomic bomb goes off, things and people kind of melt. You know, if you're too close to the, uh, to the explosion, you, you become dust. And I'm sure it's that way. That's why no man can see God and live. We, uh, we just can't do it in this, in this body, in this fleshly body. We, it can't be done. These people on the internet that say they've seen God, don't believe them. Don't believe them. A lot of people say that they've died and gone to heaven. 
messed around up there for a while and then come back to earth, tell us all about it. Don't you believe them? They're either deluded or they're liars. And I tend to think they're more liars than they are deluded. Follow the money. They're, they're getting a lot of hits on their YouTube channels and they're making money off this sort of thing. And there's scads and scads of them. Some of them now are talking about how they went to hell. I went to hell for a month. I went to hell for six months. I went to hell and I saw this, that, and the other thing. And here's what it's all about. Don't you believe it? It is appointed on a man once to die. And after this, the judgment. We need to believe our Bible before we believe the word of man. Because the Bible is the word of truth. And the Bible tells us all have sinned. But the Bible also tells us on the very day, the very moment, man sinned, God provided a remedy. Okay. It was shame what Adam did. Uh, wish he hadn't done it. But he did it. It is what it is. But what are we going to do? Well, it's what God has done, right? And God provided a way for us. Because God in his infinite wisdom knew in advance what was going to happen. It's hard for us to comprehend God's omniscience and how he knows everything there is to know. And he knew we'd be here sitting in church. And folks watching online, he knew you'd be sitting at home watching online. There's nothing God does not know. It's incredible. It blows you away. It's so fantastic, his knowledge. And yet knowing everything that he knew, he still provided a savior. And listen to this. Knowing what he knows about us, and we're still not as perfect as we wish we were. Yeah, we're born again, but we still mess around. We still slip up. He still chose us. He still went ahead and saved us. Wow. Hallelujah, what a savior. He loves us still. The day finally came when Jesus came to earth. He offered himself as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. But Israel at that time wasn't ready. And the leaders, they certainly did not want this Messiah. They were not interested in him. And so they crucified him. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels and just, you know, put them all to, to death. He could have barbecued them. But he didn't do that, did he? He let himself be crucified. He went to the cross for you and for me, not sparing his own life. If we had been in his position, we probably would have said, enough! And we would have popped the nails out, you know, and the guards would have run around crazy. Get him, he's escaping. And we'd look at him and say, drop dead, and they would drop dead, you know, if it had been one of us. We would have made some dramatic escape from the cross. But the Son of God came for the purpose of paying what you owe, what I owe, in a place called hell. He made a payment so incredible. And maybe, we'll, maybe we never will understand the depth that he went to for us. Maybe we'll never understand it fully, completely. But he did it. Thank God he did it. He didn't spare his own life. He went there with you in mind, with me in mind. He dipped his soul into our hell. The story that Ron Hutchcraft wrote about Mark the policeman. Mark the policeman in Oklahoma 
was ready to die to help others come out. Now he didn't. He helped others come out, but he himself didn't die. But Jesus, he didn't hold back. And he died for you and for me. The table of the Lord is the picture that Jesus gave us. We don't need a Hollywood movie. Remember years ago, Mel Gibson made this movie called The Passion. Remember that? To make real, you know, the sufferings of Christ. And boy, did he do a job on on the silver screen. Wow. He painted this picture with such gore that people were getting sick and throwing up in the Hollywood, the theaters that they'd play this movie in. Two or three people this, that I'm aware of, when they showed this picture around the world in different countries, two or three people had heart attacks and died from all of the, the gore. When I was a, a young teenager, they, there was a movie that came out called The Exorcist. And I wanted to see that in the worst way. My parents threatened to kill me if I, if I went, you know, snuck in and saw that thing. I'm glad I didn't go. Because a lot of kids, they literally, this was in the news, they came out of the theater and they vomited all over the sidewalk. It was, at that time, it was so gross. It just, and then people had nightmares after that. Well, this movie of the Passion, it's something like that. We don't need a Hollywood movie in order to see Jesus in the communion table. It's, it's what he would have us to have. You know something? We don't have to see all of the blood and the gore and the guts and the screaming. We don't have to. Oh boy, you know, if only we could just, you know, see what hell is like, you know, just for five minutes or for one day or something. Oh, if only we could do that, boy, then we would be different people. We would be evangelists and so on. No, I think we'd go out of our minds, to be quite honest with you. I think that hell, this is another reason I do not believe these crazies who say that they went to hell and they come back and tell us all about it. If that ever could happen, they would come back out of their mind There are many, many stories of of men who've been on the battlefields experiencing the bombing and the shooting and their their buddy right beside them gets half blown up and there's body parts all around and they experience this stuff and they come back traumatized. And that's just from a little war on earthly battlegrounds. We're talking the pit of, of hell. The pit of hell is a place that defies description. If anyone were to go there for five minutes and come back, they'd be a raving, babbling, slobbering lunatic. We'd have to put them in a padded cell. Or they'd be sitting in a chair like a vegetable. They would be so overwhelmed by what they experienced in hell. That's why I don't believe these crazies uh, with their YouTube channels that they went to hell. Don't believe that stuff. And don't believe the ones that say they went to heaven either. That's not true either. Because they come back with all kinds of weird things that conflict with the word of God. We have what we need. The Lord Jesus gave us a picture of his broken body and his shed blood. This was given 
not to unbelievers, but to believers. This is important to know. You need to know this. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he took the cup, right? Judas was gone. He wasn't in the room. Judas had already left to go betray his Savior. There was Jesus and the 11 apostles, not the 12. Judas wasn't there. 11 saved, born-again men. Those are the ones that Jesus gave the communion to. Those are the ones. The table of the Lord is meant for God's people. It's not meant for the unsaved. Now, if you would turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, we have the, the best description and explanation of the Lord's table here in this chapter. And we often, often refer to this chapter here when we have the table of the Lord. Hey, something else that I find interesting. Um, When Jesus gave them communion, he didn't give them the communion service in the morning. It was in the evening. Now, here at our church, um, our custom has been to have communion service in the evenings for two months in a row. We do we try and do it every month, have communion. And one month would be in the evening, next month would be in the evening, but the month after that, for the sake of those who are not able to come to the evening, we'll have it in the morning. It's a much smaller, reduced version of it. But then the next month is back to the evening. And you know, I, my opinion only, I prefer the evenings. I, I think that it just seems nicer. You know, our crowd is a little smaller. And it just seems that there's less pressure on us. And it just seems we can give more time to uh, the explanation and talk about these things a bit more. So it's my opinion only. And I I stand to be corrected on that one. But uh, it just seems to me that it's nicer to do it in the evening. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul dealt with the communion table. The whole book of 1 Corinthians deals with various things that the church at Corinth had messed up. They got this wrong. They got that wrong. Ah, They had cliques going on. They had different problems, stuff like that. Um, They had a modern day tongues problem 2,000 years ago at the church of Corinth as well. People were coming in. The city of uh, Corinth hosted the temple of Aphrodite which was a huge, huge, like a megachurch kind of uh, conglomerate. Um, they, Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And people believed in this with all their heart because she wasn't just the, the goddess of love, she was the goddess of fertility. So if you wanted to have good crops in the field, you had to worship Aphrodite. If you wanted to have good, healthy children, you had to worship Aphrodite. And the way they would do it is you would go in and you would rent a priestess for a half hour or an hour or something, you know, in a side room. And today we call that prostitution. Well, back then they called it worship. And listen to this. The Temple of Aphrodite had 1,000 priestesses. That gives you an idea how big a business they were doing. And it was well, well accepted. Now, to be... To be sure, I am, I am sure that there, are, there were many men who didn't want to do that. 
But for the sake of children and for the sake of good crops, they felt they had to. Other men, I'm sure, they would make up excuses in order to go, in, to go into that den of iniquity. But in that den of iniquity, they spoke in tongues. They were filled with tongue speakers. That was part of their worship. And so here the church in Corinth gets started. And the actual bona fide New Testament gift of tongues, which is no longer around for today, we don't need it. It ended even before the Bible was finished in that first century. But that gift that God gave now was being confused. The people were coming in and saying, hey, we know what this is. We, we've done this at Aphrodite. And it was a big free-for-all. And that's why chapters 12, 13, and 14 in Corinthians are given over to straighten out that tongues mess. We're not here to talk about tongues. We're here to talk about the Lord's table. They messed it up. Paul was trying to straighten it out. They were coming in there and gorging themselves and it was just wrong. Everything was wrong. They weren't being respectful one for another. There were unsaved people in the church of Corinth. And some of those unsaved people were partaking of the Lord's table. Let me show you what happened to them. Um, Verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. That means you have crucified Jesus. You, you killed him. You put him to death. You drove in the spikes. You plated the, the crown of thorns and jammed it on his forehead. You beat him with a cat of nine tails till the flesh hung off his bones. You drove the spear into his side. That's what it means to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But it says, whosoever eateth this, uh, uh, eateth this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. The word unworthy means an unsaved. And there are numerous scriptures, uh, even in the Gospels, where it speaks of this. Worth, no worth. Worthy, unworthy. Now, the truth is, in us, there's really nothing savable. You know, there's no good thing in us except Jesus Christ. In the eyes of God, that's what makes all the difference. If you have Christ, you're saved. God sees you clothed in his righteousness. If you don't have Christ, you're unsaved. You're clothed in filthy rags of self-righteousness. That's the unworthy part. There's nothing worthy. You know the unsaved aren't going to heaven. You know that. The unsaved are going to hell. You know that. It's because there's, there's no worth. They're unworthy. And in the church of Corinth, they had a mixture of saved and unsaved, and everyone was having a free-for-all at the table of the Lord. And this was a big no-no. So that's why uh, in verse uh, 28, of course, there it is right there. But let a man examine himself. Over in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. That means know for sure you're saved. And there are tests of new life you can check out to make sure you're saved. Make sure you're saved. And when you know that, then go ahead and partake. This is the table of the Lord. It's not the table of Grace Baptist Church. There's a difference. If you're saved, 
it's for you. If you're not saved, it's not for you. In fact, you've heard me say this before. If you're not saved and you go ahead and partake, this stuff will kill you. Now, I don't know if that's going to be a a slow, agonizing death. I don't know what that is, but I do know that if you're not saved, you should not touch the, uh, the bread and the juice. You know, pass it along. Don't partake. Because God will judge. So, if you look back here in verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Paul got this directly from Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Many uh, of our church folk grew up Catholic, and they were taught that when the priest says his Latin incantations over the, the bread, it becomes the literal flesh of Jesus. And they get it from saying, this is my body. They take it so hyper-literally. In every language, there's figures of speech. This represents my body, is how it's to be understood. And it says, this do in remembrance of me. Our Catholic friends have been taught that without the Mass, without partaking, there's no eternal life. There's no sins forgiven. And yet it says in this verse, it's done in remembrance. It's only done as a memory trick, a memory item. Verse 25, after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. By the way, it's never, ever called wine. Never, ever. So there's no mistaking. This is grape juice. There is no alcohol. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. That means like a new agreement. The Old Testament came through Moses. The New Testament came through Jesus. You have the the contrasting law and grace. And so this do ye as oft as ye drink it. We're not told how often to do it. Just as often as we want. And as a church we do it once a month the best we can. Other churches want to do it once a week. Good for them. No problem. Other churches want to do it once a year. Good for them. Personally I think it's a little bit too long between communion services, my opinion only, but that's their decision. We are not told every week, every month, we're not told. So anyhow, it's done in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death. It's a showing of the Lord's death, his broken body and his shed blood. And it says, till he come, and he's going to come. He is coming one day, hallelujah. And so, What we need to do is pause now for a few moments. What we need to do is to ask the Lord to search our hearts and pray, Father, is there anything in my life, anything in my heart that's not right? Have I messed up somewhere? You know, we all do it. Sometimes I get persnickety with my sweet, wonderful wife and I'll say, you know, something unkind and the Holy Spirit will say, Dummy. <laughs> that seems like how the Holy Spirit talks to me. <laughs> Dummy. That was wrong. And I have to agree. And I ask the Lord to forgive me. And then I get my wife and I ask her to forgive me. You know, in all the years of our marriage. And I say this honestly. I'm not, tr- I'm not trying to 
flatter my wife or anyone, but honestly, I'm the only one that's ever caused trouble in our marriage. It's been me, not her. She is a gift of God, and as far as I'm concerned, she's an angel sent from heaven. In 42 years of marriage, uh, I am the perpetrator of uh, bad times. So it's always been on my shoulders. I've done a lot of repenting in my marriage, gentlemen. Just keep that in mind. If you have to repent and ask your wife to forgive you, your pastor's right there with you, buddy. You know, been there, done that. So I'm on your side. I'm rooting for you. Now, I'm not trying to say that our lady folks are all perfect. But um, before I got married, the pastor who married us, he uh, sat me down. He was going to give me a little talk. I was just a young guy at the time. He's going to give me a little talk about marriage. And he said to me, now you do realize, he looked at me. He says, you do realize that you'll never marry the perfect, the perfect girl. And I says, yeah, I realize that. And then he says, <clears throat> because I've married her. So a little bit of humor there. But it's come to pass. I married above my pay grade. But anyhow, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we go to God. Lord, have I messed up? Have I committed sin? Have I bitten someone's head off? Have I said something unkind that wasn't called for? Have I taken something that doesn't belong to me and not returned it? Have I put my hand in the cookie jar? That's an English expression, you know, where you get a hold of something you shouldn't. Lord, search my life. See if there be any wicked way in me. And if the Holy Spirit shows you something, then you agree with the Holy Spirit. Say, you're right, Lord, you're right. Jesus, he uh, was approached by this Syrophoenician woman. Please heal my daughter, you remember? And then Jesus basically said, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. He was calling her a dog. How did she respond? She said, truth, Lord. And yet the dogs eat of the crumbs. And he was so impressed with her. He says, oh woman, great is thy faith. And he granted her request and the demon was cast out of uh, the daughter's life. And they had a happily ever after after that. But we need to agree with the Holy Spirit. And don't say, well, I know it's not right, but everyone does it. Don't, don't be like that. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you, it's precious. And you listen to what God has to say. And so I've talked too much. We need to take a minute now and bow our heads, close our eyes, and pray, Lord, I mean this. I'm serious. Lord, show me. Is there anything in my life that shouldn't be there? Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.